servants here at New Life Press. And if you are uh, visiting us, thanks for joining us for worship. Glad that you're here. We are, if you haven't caught the note, that we are beginning our missions month um, starting today for the, for the month of March. And we do this here at New Life Press. We dedicate, essentially, we desire to dedicate all of our church and our hearts and prayers and resources, but we take a particular and intentional month of the year to focus specifically on what the Word of God is telling us about missions. And this month, our heart and desire is to be able to cast a vision to show the church the importance of partnerships between the church and other organizations in order to reach the people of the nations. Because missions is really a big and great commission. And one of the ways that we can be able to reach lost people is going to be through like-minded, gospel-centered partnerships between the local church and other organizations. So I'm going to kick this series off today, and then we have a list of speakers who are leaders in their respective organizations that will cast a vision for missions, but also how you as an individual and the church can be able to partner with these organizations in order to reach a wider audience. And so that's our heart and prayer, but for today, we're going to look at the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, perhaps the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in John 17, because in this prayer, what our Savior is essentially doing is praying for missions. And so if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from John chapter 17, verse 6 to verse 19. John 17, starting with verse 6 to verse 19, and this is God's Word. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And this is God's word. You could take your seats. Well, this is Missions Month, and uh, we just finished a, a membership class yesterday morning. It was a wonderful time to be able to meet uh, visitors and guests of our church and be able to share a little bit about the heart and the mission of the local church, but particularly what that heart and mission looks like for New Life Press. And obviously, we talk about our core values of a church in which we have four. And these core values are essentially the guiding posts or principles or the train tracks that lead our train of New Life Press 
to the vision and destination that we believe God has given us. And one of those core values that dictate and adjudicate the decisions that we make as a church is that we strive to be a sent and sending church, that we believe in multiple ways that the sent one of Jesus came to save us, and as he saved us, he sent us also out into the world to share the message of Jesus. But we also need to consider what does that really look like because there are particulars and specifics of what that looks like. And for us, because our other core values that we strive to be a church that's reformed in theology, that helps us to dictate and to learn how to cultivate partnerships that are like-minded. And that's why when we think about missions here at New Life Press, we do have a priority with our denomination's missions arm, which is MTW, who is the PCA's missions agency. We try to support missionaries that are through that agency as a church that is reformed in theology. We also want to be strategic under our missions director, Deacon Dong, and the committee to focus on different specific parts of the globe because you can't reach everywhere at the same time. We want to try to be a little bit more intentional. And so we start this missions month with all that in mind. And what we focus on here in the prayer of Jesus in John 17 is really to look at the fact that missions begins in your own relationship with God. Sure, we have missionaries in Australasia and the Fiji Islands. Sure, we have missionaries in Southeast Asia. But before we can reach the ends of the world, the question is to ask, does the gospel reach the depths of your soul? Because missions generally believes, I believe, begins in the heart. And I think that's what Jesus, in large part, is praying for in John 17. How does the gospel compel and speak into your life? This is Jesus' last prayer on earth because a few chapters after this, he'll get betrayed by Judas and then he'll be crucified for the sins of the world. And similar to the last meal of someone who's on death row, this prayer of Jesus really shows us what is on our Savior's heart. Because sometimes, you know, you watch the movies and what's your last meal? What do you really crave? What is your deepest desire on your last meal before you get executed on death row? That's essentially what shows what we see here in this passage that shows us what burdens Jesus' heart the most. And I would argue it's missions. And you're thinking, well, I don't see the word missions in there, but it's right there in verse 18. As he sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world that we are sent in sending church. And that word for sent comes from the Latin word where we get our English missions. So as you have missioned me into the world, so I have missioned you into the world. That's verse 18. That's his purpose. That's his goal. Jesus shows us more specifically what his mission was. Why was he sent into this world? So in verse 6 of our passage, it says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. He's showing God's name, his glory, his purpose, his plan. That's why Jesus came into this world, to reveal who God was. And then in verse 8, he says, For I have given them, the disciples, the words that you have gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, that they have believed that you have sent me. So Jesus' mission is to manifest God's purpose, his glory, his plan, his name to the world. And then in verse 8, he says the disciples have believed this, that God has sent Jesus. And that's essentially what missions is for Jesus, to save a people for himself, to magnify God's name into this world. And so I want to consider with you 
that as Jesus was missioned into the world, he was sent, he also has a mission for us as he missions us into the world. That's what I want to look at because we do believe and strive to be a sent and sending church. So let's look at three practical ingredients, three factors, three sort of elements of what makes a vibrant, gospel-centered world church so that we can be a sentence sending church into the world. Three simple gospel ingredients and elements that cultivate and dictate, saturate, and flavor the mission culture of our local church. And this is what Jesus, I think, prays for. One, he says, you want to be a sentence sending church, you have to be filled with joy of the Lord. You need to be filled with joy. Secondly, he says you want to be a sentence-sending church, that you have to be set apart as a holy church. So you need joy, but you also need to be holy. And then thirdly, if you want to be a vibrant church that's about other-centered people and to reach people for the nations, you also have to be united to one another. One way to think about this is that First, we'll look at joy, secondly, holiness, and then third, unity. But one way to think about this in another way for yourself is to say, if you want to be a sentence-sending person and member, that you would have to love Jesus in joy, that you have to love God in his holiness, and that you have to love one another in the church before you could be good at loving people outside the church. So let's consider this. Let's look at joy, this first essential ingredient You can see that joy and missions are intimately connected because it's right there in verse 13. Let's read that. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus is essentially saying, I'm speaking this into the world so that you can have my joy. Now, John 17 is the priestly prayer of Jesus. In the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. In the verses that we've read, 6 to 19, he's praying for the disciples. And then towards the end of the chapter, he's praying for the world. It's, it's very simple. I'm praying for myself. I'm praying for my disciples. I'm praying for the world. That's sort of, by the way, how I pray for myself in the daily morning. I pray for myself. I pray for my family, then the church, and then the world and community. And I move out in concentric circles. I learned that from Jesus. And he's saying as he prays for the disciples, I'm praying for the, I'm, I'm going to say these things to the world, and when I say these things to the world, that will give you my joy. He's saying that's very simple. You want the joy of Jesus. You want the same sort of vibrant life. Jesus says, I'm going to literally give you the joy that I have as your King and Savior. I'm going to give this joy to you as I share these things to the world. Let's try to break that down and figure out what does Jesus really mean by that. Jesus is saying to the Father, I'm coming to you and I speak these things to the world that they may be fulfilled in themselves, that my joy may be fulfilled in them. That's a purpose clause. I speak these things that they may have my joy. So in some sense, let's think about this just on a human level. The goal and purpose of what Jesus is saying is that I am going to give you what every human being in this world strives for naturally joy and happiness. But that word there when it says, my joy fulfilled in themselves, Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a joy that is complete. Because that word fulfilled means a 100% complete joy. And every human being, Christian or not, skeptic or not, believer or non-believer, one thing we can agree upon is that on some fundamental level, every human being is striving 
or happiness. You all want some level of joy, and Jesus says, I'm not going to just give you any joy. I'm going to give you a completed joy. Because a lot of us try to seek happiness and a complete joy through work or success or romance and love and family, and certainly there's very happy things about that. But Jesus says, you want the real deal and a complete joy, I'm going to give it to you for me by saying these things to the world. Now, what are these things that Jesus says and claims, if I say these things to the world, I'm going to give you a complete joy? Let me boil it down for you. These things is missions. Jesus says, I'm going to show and tell the world about missions. And he's saying to the disciples, if you catch this vision and understand, I'm going to tell the world about me, about why I came into this world, why I was on mission from heaven to earth, and that'll give you, disciples, complete joy. And then he says, I'll send you out with that very same joy. These things, if you want to know what exactly he's talking about, I'm calling it missions, but it's really referring to everything that Jesus has talked about since chapter 13. And in the Bible, the commentators will note that chapter 13 to chapter 20 is essentially called the farewell discourse because it covers Jesus' last sermon, his last Bible study, his last prayer. He says goodbye, and then he dies on the cross. It's the farewell discourse. It's Jesus' goodbye. And he's talking about, in this farewell discourse, and every teaching he gives, his prayers, his conversations, is about missions. He came to die for sinners, rise again from the dead, and give eternal life to the world. That the truth of who Jesus is and his mission is essentially the idea that he came into this world to save a people for himself. That covers from 13, John 13, to the prayer in John 17. And he's saying, these things about my feral discourse is about missions. And he's saying to you and me here today as his disciples, if you understand Jesus' mission and you get swept into that program, you will have joy fulfilled, a complete joy. That's what Jesus promises. Well, why is this? Before we go on to the second point, now let me try to bring this into a regular perspective of everyday life. Um, why is joy related to mission? Why do, you, why do you have to be on mission in order to really have complete joy? Well, it's not just a Jesus thing. It's a, a human thing. There's this article in the New York Times op-ed written by this author, this journalist, David Brooks, and he's basically just making a case for a particular type of happiness and joy. And he takes two approaches to finding happiness in life, and then he compares them. And these two approaches that David Brooks talks about the first is called four levels of happiness. And then he contrasts this with uh, a different con kind of concept of joy and happiness called uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But this is essentially what he says. There's an article that says when life asks for everything, he offers two models of happiness, but then he also contrasts them and says one is better than the other. The first one that he gives us in this article is this idea of four kinds of happiness, four levels. Four areas of our lives that are ranked from lowest to highest. Four kinds of happiness, which is essentially, he gets this from this one philosopher, Aristotle. But we can relate to this on a, a human level. He said, on the most basic level, you could reach happiness, have a level of joy from material pleasure. If you have food, drink, and clothes, then you can have happiness. And once that's satisfied, you go to the second level of happiness that humans need, which is achievement. Achievement in love, achievement in career, achievement in academics. 
And once you achieve something in your life, in your work, then that's satisfied, you go to the third level of happiness, which is generosity, giving back to others. And once he's satisfied the third level, he says the pinnacle and the highest kind of happiness that any human could ever dream to achieve and to experience and receive is having surrendered your priorities and your preferences to some noble cause. That's the highest kind and goal of happiness, to surrendering ourselves to some noble cause. What is that? Missions. See, the second approach that David Brooks talks about, which I think is very prevalent, especially among individual Western people like you and me, is what they call Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a different approach. It's kind of similar, but also fundamentally different. And in this hierarchy of needs, it basically says you start with the physical needs, hunger and thirst. Once that's satisfied, you go to safety needs, financial and physical. Once you have safety, then you go to existential needs, you want to have love and acceptance. And then after you have love and acceptance, then you go to the next hierarchy, which is self-esteem. I want to feel good about myself. That's what, this is actually what kicked off what they say in education and parenting, the self-esteem movement that our children and some of us may have experienced. But in this approach, after self-esteem, the highest expression and reception of joy comes through what they call self authenticating actualization, meaning that I want to experience autonomy and experience my true, authentic self. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I want to be who I'm truly called to be. I want to discover who I am. I want to be seen. And I want to discover and authenticate myself through self-actualization and be uniquely me. You know, that's definitely the cry of the younger generation here today. And David Brooks's point is this. These two popular models offer very two different conclusions. One says ultimate happiness is surrendering ourselves to a noble cause. The other one says you reach ultimate happiness by reaching individual potential self-actualization. He goes on to say that the four loves model, even in the secular realm, offers a more reasonable solution for all humans. And he concludes, actually, that Maslow's hierarchy of needs too easily devolves into self-absorption, and it's time to put that away. I actually think both has a little bit of element of truth, but I heavily lean with what Aristotle brings us in the four kinds of happiness. Now, there's this rabbi that wrote a testimony about the time that he walked along uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma. And let me just give you a sort of a not really a quote, but sort of a sentiment of what Rabbi Wolf Kelman was talking about when he was sharing his experiences of doing walking for uh, civil rights with Dr. King. And he said this, we felt connected, connected in song, connected to the transcendental, connected to the ineffable. We felt triumph, we felt celebration. We felt things that change for the good and that nothing is ever concealed forever. He said when he was walking for this greater purpose, it was a warming, transcendental, spiritual experience. Meaning and purpose and mission were beyond exact words. Mission. So it's not just a Jesus thing, it's just a cultural thing. It's a human thing. It's a societal thing. 
that the greatest joy that you could ever have and experience in this world is not just through individual achievement and actualization, but to live for something that is beyond yourself. That's what that word transcendental means, to live for a greater reason, a greater purpose. I mean, if any generation sort of gets this, it's probably the Gen Z or millennials. They always want to change the world, and that's something we should cultivate and celebrate with them. Because if you surrender yourself to a noble cause as reaching the highest purpose of existence and joy, what is that? That's what Jesus is saying, mission. But it can't just be a mission for yourself or a mission for the culture, all good as that may be. You want to experience the highest joy for a disciple, for a human being, than what Christianity is trying to say in contrast to everything else in this world. You want to receive this joy that really gives you a reason for being in your life? Follow the mission of God to live for other people, to proclaim, as Jesus did, a manifesting the name of God to the world, which is basically saying, I'm telling you about my Father. And if you love Jesus, and if you love his purpose and plan, if you know your reason for being, if you want to be able to live in such a way that you finally know that life coheres because you have the greatest joy and happiness as you surrender your personal preferences to a noble cause, there's no greater noble cause than the mission of Jesus Christ. And that's why you need joy as an essential ingredient. This leads us to our second point. You don't need just joy, but you also need holiness. And this is why. Holiness offers us a very practical way about how to engage the world. Let me show you where this is. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus prays for the disciples, and he says, I'm about to go to heaven. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is the same word as holiness. Basically saying, make them holy in your word because your word is truth. Holiness means that you're set apart for a purpose and plan. So it's not just a spiritual religious word. It's actually an everyday word. Holiness means you take something and use it for the way that it's designed to be used. So when you take a pair of glasses and you use them to see, those glasses were made holy. They're set apart for use. If you take a pencil and you use it to write a letter, those that pencil has been made holy because you used it for the way that it was designed. If you take a pencil and use it to see or you take your glasses to write a letter, then those items are no longer holy because they're not being used for their design. So for Christians, one simple way to understand what it means to be holy is to know that God has set you apart for a purpose that he designed you to live, to love God, to love people, and to glorify and worship him, to live on missions. In fact, one commentator, D.A. Carson, has said this about the Gospel of John, and when he says, where he says about verse 17, sanctification in the Gospel of John is always about missions. Now, it's set up really clearly in verses 17 to 19. In 17, it says, sanctify them in truth. In verse 19, it says, sanctify them in truth. What do you have in verse 18, which is the middle? Well, it's a sandwich. Sanctify them on truth, verse 17. Sanctify them in truth, verse 19. Verse 18, what do you have there? Missions. So he's saying if you want to be sent into the world and to be effective, to be a salt of the earth and a light of the world, if you want to be winsome and savvy, if you want to be able to gauge the world so that you can be full of joy as you swept up in the paradigm and plan of God, you have to be holy. Holiness. Be, in a way, and live in such a way that you can represent God and be used by him in the way that he has designed you. In some ways, you can argue that holiness is going to be your greatest weapon or tool in missions, the character of your conduct. 
You know, you need to preach the gospel. You need to be able to address skeptics and atheists in the way they have questions about Christianity. But not everyone has to do that. That's a, a certain gift that people are really able to engage worldviews that are not like Christians. But at least you have to explain the gospel. But the way that you can supplement the gospel is going to be through your holiness. Was it Mahatma Gandhi that once said that I would believe in Christian Savior if the Christians and followers of Jesus looked more like Jesus? Holiness to live in such a way that you are set apart. It's essential for missions, your character, your conduct, your reflection. It's a non-negotiable. You live like Jesus, and you look like Jesus. Now, you can think about it this way. Um, you know, you look around at all the parents and all the children in this church, and it's amazing just to see what the influence of a dad is upon their child because you notice that just through the culture of the family, the child will like the same foods as mom and dad. The kid will like the same shows maybe as mom and dad, like the same vacations as mom and dad. They love the things that mom and dad eats, and they also dislike the things that mom and dad don't like. So if missions is your greatest tool, for, if holiness is your greatest tool for missions, what is holiness? It means essentially you love the things that God loves, and you hate the things that God hates. You want the things that God wants, like lost souls, so heaven can celebrate. And you want to throw out the things that God wants to throw out. That's holiness. Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Do you want what God wants, and do you want to throw away what God wants to throw away? Because if you could capture that, that might be in some fundamental way, your greatest tool to evangelize and to be part of missions. But let's dig a little bit deeper really quickly before we finish up on unity. Holiness also is not your greatest weapon or potentially greatest tool, but it also gives you a very practical way to engage the world. And Jesus gives us this in verses 14 to 18. I'm not going to read those verses. Let me just summarize it for you. There's a balance here. And I really love the way how Jesus is so, so strategic, so winsome. He's praying for the disciples, and he's basically saying, I'm going to heaven, I'm sending the disciples into the world. And he's telling the disciples, this is how you to engage the world. In verse 14, he says, you're not supposed to be of the world. And then verse 15, Jesus prays, don't take the disciples out of the world. But he says in verse 18, go into the world. That's your paradigm. Yeah, you got to flesh it out. you got to figure out in the specifics of your work and your life and entertainment. What does that mean? But at least you have a paradigm to sort of be guardrails against the extremes. Because Jesus says, don't take them out of the world. Don't let them be of the world. But I'm going to send them into the world. That's how you engage the world. And the only way that you could strike that right balance is if you're going to be holy like Jesus was. To hate the things that God hates and to love the things that God loves. Don't be of the world. Don't be taken out of the world, but be into the world. See, that, that prepositional phrase, into, is a very strong word. It doesn't say just be in the world. It says be into the world. That assumes that you are made for another world. Into, that dictates, that sort of intimates to us that we have a different identity, a different purpose, but we're still into the world by maintaining who we essentially are foundationally. So you're not of the world. You're not taken out of the world, but you've got to be into the world. 
You got to engage the world. You got to know the world. You, gotta, you can even appreciate and celebrate the world. You can love the world, but you're not of the world. At the same time, you can't be so fearful to say that the world in of itself is all evil, so the only way I'm going to be faithful as a Christian is I'm going to be taken out of the world. That's completely the opposite of what Jesus is praying for. He's saying you're not supposed to be an assimilationist to assimilate into the world, but you're also not supposed to be an isolationist to be taken out of the world thinking you're better and you look down and criticize the world. you got to be into the world. You don't want to just be a secularist that you're completely living by the same goals and paradigms of the non-Christian world, but you're also not a modern-day Buddhist in which you're saying, I'm going to reach a higher state of existence by separating myself from the world that is evil and dirty. Jesus is saying Christianity offers a different approach to the world that every other religion can't even compete with. Jesus is saying, don't be of the world. Don't take me out of the world. Be into the world. Be into the world. In the workplace, you could be into the world. Sure, be successful in the workplace, but realize that maybe, just maybe in work, success and pay can't be your highest aspiration. Maybe it shouldn't be a high aspiration. Because you're not of the world, you're not taken out, but you could be into the world. That's the only way that we could understand and really celebrate God's good creation in finance, architecture, the arts, literature, because a lot of those works that we could celebrate as a society and culture are oftentimes written and created by people who are not believers. So it doesn't mean everything that they have composed or written or constructed is going to be evil. We could appreciate that because they reflect God's good design. We can engage that. We can celebrate that. We can enjoy that because we can be into the world. We're not of the world, but we're also not taken out of the world. We don't live by the principles of the world but we also are not isolationists and don't live without any engagement of the world. One of the ways that you can engage the world to show as a couple of practical applications of this, two basic little things. As you engage your neighbors, as you engage your different spheres of existence, one way that you can tell the world that I am into the world, but I'm not of it, I'm not going to be taken out of it, a very simple evangelistic tool. Every Sunday, you go to church. That sounds pretty simple, but actually, in some ways, it's very radical. Every Sunday, you go to church. That action will show that you're holy, because you're into the world Monday through Saturday, but Sunday, God tells me this is my day and I'm calling my children to come together to worship with me and to receive my service to them. And when you tell people in the workplace or you tell people in the neighborhood or you tell people over at the Starbucks or at the basketball court, want to hang out on Sunday, said, maybe I'd love to do something with you, but I can't at this time because I get to go to church. That might be, in a simple level, your most basic Christian duty to show the world you are not of it, you're not out of it, but I'm going to be into it. Let's move on. So he looked at joy, he looked at holiness. Let's consider unity. Why is unity a third ingredient in missions? It's interesting because Jesus prays for the disciples, and twice at least he prays for unity. Look at verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, 
that they may be one, even as we are one. So in verse 11, Jesus says, I'm coming home, God. Please watch over the disciples. May they be united. And their unity between each other is going to be a unity that Jesus has with dad. So the unity that God has with his son Jesus is the same unity that Christians can have with one another. And then he even prays in verse 20 to 21. We didn't read that, but let's read that here. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's talking about non-Christians, and he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So it's right there. It's a purpose clause. He prays that they may all be one. Purpose clause, so that they may believe you have sent me. See, it's, it's interesting. Jesus, no, there's a lot to missions, but one of the fundamental things about missions in the church, both in the way that we live with one another and engage one another, is to, is to say, Jesus prays for you. Remember, his last prayer, his last will and testament for you and me before he dies on the cross and goes to heaven, he protects us, he loves us. He says, Father, I'm going to die for the sins of the world. Please watch over the disciples with your name. Protect them, shower them, encourage them, strengthen them. God, please be with them. And what does Jesus pray as his deepest, most heartfelt desire as their Savior? He doesn't say, God, make them really successful, although you can be successful. He doesn't say, Lord, Father, please make them really rich. Please make them well-connected. Please make them really comfortable. No, the one thing he prays for before he goes to the death chair on the cross he says, God, make them one. Why? Because a purpose clause, so that the world may believe. The unity in this church is a witness to the evangelism to the world. So even in a practical sense, it never makes much sense if you sacrifice and go to the extremes for people you've never met across the globe in missions if you can't even get along and love the person across the pews in church. If you can't get along with people in the church, there's something fundamentally wrong if you're sacrificing and growing across the world for missions. Because Jesus says mission starts at the church. The witness of the church begins with the unity of the church. And if there's ever a time period in our day and age that we need to hear about this idea of unity it probably is going to be our current context. We have been the most fractured, individualistic culture that our society has seen in decades, especially in light of the political climate and that we live in. You know, certain things that you have to kind of double down on in order for you to take a stance that will cause division. We're not looking at unity at all costs. But once the fundamental things about Christianity are really agreed upon, it's going to be hard-pressed for you to come up with a reason in which you're going to cause division in the church. It can't just be political affiliation. It can't be socioeconomic tax brackets. It can't be personal preferences and personal likes and dislikes about parenting, vacations, and humor. Because we already live in a fractured world that is highly individualistic. And the one thing Jesus is praying for us is that we have unity and the ability to love one another, other-centeredly, graciously, to be a countercultural witness to the world. It's not the biggest churches, not the nicest churches, not the fanciest, most professional services or churches that will be the greatest witness to Jesus. It'll be the most united church. 
Do you know that we live in a very fragmented, individualistic, divisive world? There are a couple of things just to kind of speak into our culture. Now, this is a bit dated, but I think it's even more fragmented. All you have to do, according to looking at marketing and those who do surveys of our society and culture, they all say the same thing. Time Magazine, Newsweek, Consumer Reports, they're all saying that we have never been as fragmented as a culture than we are today. And they're looking at this from basically looking at your consumer choices. And this is just an example. Some of these shows are not even in broadcast anymore, but they're saying that the people who used to watch the show Duck Dynasty is a very different demographic than those who watch urban people will watch Modern Family. Duck Dynasty is usually rural, Modern Family is usually urban. They say that if you tend to watch the Super Bowl or Property Brothers or you wait for the Academy Awards, there's a 55% probability that you have a high income. The same is true decades ago. If you ever watch this movie called Jerry Maguire or The English Patient or Gone Girl in 2016, it's most likely because you make a lot of money and you're a certain ethnic background. In the same way, if you used to watch Cops on TV in 2004 or this sitcom called Big Mama's House, then that probably reflected a certain socioeconomic demographic and ethnicity. Divergence is even greater when you look at the surveys and studies within social, racial, and political issues. Views on marriage, views on race, views on justice and religion. We are fragmented and shattered to a thousand pieces. And not only that, they say on an individual level, we are lonelier than ever as a culture. A survey by Cigna once said that Americans are lonelier than ever with almost and above 50% of those surveyed feeling left out and lonely, especially their kids who have been intensified with this loneliness in something called TikTok. Dr. Nicholas Christakis of the New York Times once said, if you're lonely, you transmit loneliness like a disease because you cut ties with people, other people cut ties with you, and emotionally and mentally that has an effect. And then you proceed to behave in the same way in which you cut ties and inflict that same sort of hurt on other people. So you essentially you have a culture in which there's a cascade of loneliness, of depression, of hurt. It's a disintegration of our social fabric and network. And on top of that, not only are we more fragmented and lonelier as a culture, Kevin DeYoung who wrote this book, we are busier than ever in the Western world. He says really quickly in his book, we wake up to survive and not to serve because we have so many things on our plate thinking we could expand our capacities that we are actually like God when in fact we are finite and broken. And our desires to achieve and to aspire cause us to spread ourselves thin partially because every morning when we wake up, we have a different mission. Did you know that my job here from the pulpit is not to get you excited about mission, but it's to redirect your hearts to the right mission? See, we have to understand, all of you are missionaries. You are strong missionaries. The challenge is that your mission is maybe not the one that Jesus has given you. Your mission is love. Your mission is power. Your mission is success. Your mission is comfort. Your mission is propaganda and agenda. Your mission is politics. All things which are fine in themselves. Your mission is the American dream. That's all wonderful. We celebrate that. But you are strong missionaries. All you have to do is to look at the allocation of your time, look at the allocation of your budget, then you'll find what your mission is. So I don't have to tell you to be 
excited about missions. Your actions already tell me and the world, you're excited about missions. I'm excited about missions. The challenge is to say, is the mission that you live for every morning that you wake up, is it the mission that Jesus has given you? Because Jesus' prayer is all the more poignant in what we just looked at. He doesn't pray to be successful or to be rich. He says, I pray that they'll be one in this fragmented, lonely, busy culture that we live in. Because in Jesus Christ, when you get on track with the mission of Jesus, we can move from loneliness to oneness. We can move from being units to being united. We can move from just surviving to serving. We can show the world in real time that Jesus came into this world and died upon the cross. How? Because we are united with all our differences and backgrounds with the one vision one faith, one baptism, one Savior of all and in all and through all because Jesus prays for missions that we manifest the name of the Father in his goodness and glory and his love to the world out there, both by the word of God but also the character of our conduct. Then and only then, friends, then and only then, you'll begin to see missions. In the coming weeks, I pray that you pray for our church, pray for yourselves, pray for the partnerships that we'll learn about, and to just take a moment and a second to think, is this something that the Lord wants me to participate in? And I pray it is. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we have received in your Son and this prayer that Jesus gives us even today through your word. And I believe that Jesus, as our high priest, is still praying this for the church. Help us to be part of this mission, to be full of joy, to be holy and into the world, and to be able to live in such a way that reflects the unity of the grounding and the commonality that we have in Jesus. We love you with all our hearts and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church.